Amen. You know, that song written by the great hymn writer Isaac Watts, when Eric Little, the great Olympian, left to go on his mission journey, um, he, at the dock, was met by all of his friends that were wishing him goodbye, and from the edge of the ship, he sang that hymn to them. And so, amen. It's nice to think about how these songs have meant so much to our brothers and sisters that came before us. As we come to the Word of God today, we come back to Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, we've been, of course, in this long journey. We restarted it last week as we entered the fourth chapter and began to think about the things that are written there. We looked back to the third chapter to remember what was said in that third chapter and how chapter 4 builds upon it. You may remember as we were leaving chapter 3 back in, I believe it was October, or I guess November actually, in November, I mentioned we really wouldn't have to recap too much because uh, the argument that started in 3 really is carried on in 4, and so we began to look at that. And we looked at, ultimately, the, this section is arguing on the basis of Psalm 95 that there is a rest for the people of God. It's argued and exegeted uh, in a complicated way, but it, it's essentially this. God said, those that rebelled in the wilderness shall not enter my rest. And David says, quoting various sections of Exodus and Numbers, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as they did. So it's not just an offer or promise or invitation the days, if you will, in the wilderness, but he's saying it's happening in our own day. God is at work. He's inviting into his rest. And if you hear his voice, David says, do not harden your hearts. The author says that today extends to today. That was 2,000 years ago. In his own day, he says, that extends today. There is a promise of rest for the people of God. How will you respond? Will you respond as they did in the wilderness with disobedience? No faith. They died in the wilderness. Now he's talking to a very specific people here. We'll come back to that. But again, that's the question. They came to the edge, if you will, of this promise of rest, which seemed to be Canaan. And Psalm 95 reminds them that that generation didn't receive the promise. They got near, very near, but they didn't receive it. David says to the people in his own day, worship the Lord. Praise God. Give Him the glory for all that He's done for us. He's given us a land. He's given us rest from our enemies. A little picture of rest. But do not forget, David says, what happened to the generations of our forefathers. Biological, not spiritual forefathers, right? Who heard the same preaching, who heard the same message of God, who who heard the promises of God and yet did not believe them. Did not trust God. How is that evident? They rebelled against Him. That is the fruit of the tree by which you judge the tree. It's not a stumble or a mistake. They steadfastly rebelled against God over and over again. What does God say about it? He said, They always rebel against me in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So the author of Hebrews is trying to say to us, this is not a people who were saved. And, you know, these are not a people who were regenerated. 
These are not a people who were the people of God traveling through the wilderness. These are people who never had faith. He says that very clearly in verse 2 of our current chapter. The gospel, the good news was preached to them as it was to us. Now, not exactly the same words. The content was a little different. But the promise of God as deliverer was preached to them. As it has been preached to you, he says. What was the problem? It did not profit them. It availed them nothing. Why did it not avail them anything? Because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. They received the content. They didn't believe it. It's not enough to hear. It's not enough to know. You must believe. You must trust in the Word. That is what is being told to us here. And if you want to really go a step further, the author of Hebrews, just as David is saying in his day, you've received the promises of God. You received some evidence of the power of God in delivering us and giving us a land and giving us a capital of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and giving us rest from our enemies. All these blessings, you've seen the power of God. They did too. They didn't believe Him. And David says, Beware lest you be just like them, your biological forefathers, and in doing so show that you're, you're also their spiritual descendants because you're just like them. You don't believe God. Because there is a danger, he's saying, to a people who have received and seen the power of God, received the blessings of God, that they won't believe God. I think back in November or maybe October in one of those sermons back then, we talked about how our own nation's kind of an evidence of this, isn't it? A nation so blessed by God receives so many blessings and yet steadfastly turns their back on God. It says we want nothing of Him, nothing from Him, nothing to do with Him. David warns, be careful. The author of Hebrews says to a people who are thinking of leaving the church to go back to the synagogue, be careful. For you too have seen the mighty power of God. You too have heard the preaching of the deliverance of God. Now how do we know they saw the power of God? We've already been told that in chapter 2. In fact, if you go to verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What makes that salvation great? It offers us rest, by the way. But here's what else he says about it. It was first spoken by the Lord, confirmed by those who heard Him, so the apostles. Now listen to this. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Remember that text as we walk through it? You didn't just hear the Word. It was co-testified to by God Himself when He stamped it with His approval in signs and works and miracles and wonders. You saw the power of God, he sang. No different than in David's day. No different than in Moses' day. You saw the power of God back up the promises of God. Are you too going to disbelieve? Now how would they show their disbelief? They turn their back on Christ and walk away. Now I think it's very obvious here what the author of Hebrews is saying. If the people in the days of Moses didn't lose faith but never had it, and if the people in the days of, of David, who would have turned their back on God's promises and not believed them, would have given evidence that they were never a part of the people of God, then you'll be doing the exact same thing 
You won't be a people who have lost your faith. You'll demonstrate to us you never had faith. You heard the preaching as they did. You heard the delivering message of God as they did. And like them, it never mixed with faith in your heart. That's what you'll be testifying to if you walk away. So again, you've heard the promises of God. You've seen a mighty demonstration of power. You've heard the testimony of the wilderness generation and Moses. And you've heard that Christ is greater than Moses. Moses didn't take the people into the promised land. But you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. We have an objection. There was one that took them into the land of rest. His name was Joshua. What about him? And so we want to look at how this author completes that picture, uh, at least temporarily, as he continues to move forward. And so we want to look at two points this morning. First of all, an earlier Joshua, and I'm going to read the text again, but I want you to think about this. An earlier Joshua, and second of all, a greater Savior. So hearing the text again, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, being mixed, not being mixed, excuse me, with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter the rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest... Uh, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, as we think about this and we think about these two points, an earlier Joshua and a greater Savior, you'll see where I'm going with this in just a moment. But uh, I want us to think here about some important things because we looked at this text last week. We wanted to kind of recap three, move into four a little bit, and, and much of the text was exposited in that sense last week. And we want to remember something that we looked at last Sunday. Because this rest is explained to us as picturing Canaan. But then as we come to the fourth chapter, as we looked at last Sunday, there's a bit of a switch, isn't there? Because the rest is now said to be not Canaan, but the very rest that God entered on the seventh day of creation. And if that's what it is, then Joshua couldn't have taken them into it by crossing a physical border or crossing a river, even though that river stopped its flow and he was able to go across and collect stones out of the midst of it. And yet, that cannot be the rest. But certainly, as we looked at last Sunday, Canaan pictured the rest. It's referred to in the Scriptures as a land of rest, Deuteronomy 12, 9, a land of rest. Your inheritance, this place of rest, as it's said, and there are a number of other places that it's worded in just that way. And we looked at this last Sunday. How would it have been a rest for them? Well, if they had remained in covenantal obedience, what would have happened in the land of Canaan? They would have prospered. 
they would have had everything they needed. They would have had security. They would have had peace. In fact, the very point that we see in the life of David is they had a brief moment of that. In fact, it's worded in just that way in the Chronicles when God had given them rest from their enemies. They had a period of peace and prosperity, a period in which they were able to focus on the worship of God. And David was saying to such a people, do not forget the God who has delivered us into this moment. But remember this. This promise is spoken of in the days of Moses. We looked at that over the last Sunday and and many Sundays before at the end of last year. It was promised through Moses and yet Moses never led that generation into the promised land. This rest that was spoken about in the days of Moses, Moses never saw it. I mean, he saw it from afar, if you will, the land of Canaan. He, He looked across to see it, but he didn't enter it. And that generation largely did not enter it, but died in the wilderness. That is the very threat, the very warning that is given to this people that are told to fear, to fear. Now, if Canaan is a shadow of rest, yet Moses is faithful, but did not enter it, that's going to have us ask a couple of questions. What does that say of Moses? Is is it a picture that all who died outside the the rest of Canaan were not amongst the people of God? No. I don't know how you could go any further than he does in chapter 3 to explain Moses is a faithful servant of God. He was faithful amongst the people of God. He is in the rest of God. But he did not enter the picture of that rest. He did not enter the land of promise. So we don't want to make that mistake. But we also don't want to make the mistake of thinking that all that generation that died in the wilderness somehow were in the rest of God. They did not enter it. That is told clearly in Psalm 95 and looking back to what's written in in the books of Moses. They shall not enter. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. They died outside the promise. Now, if we've answered the first question we'd come to on Moses, what does it say about Moses? There's a second question that arises. And we began to touch on it last Sunday morning. Wasn't all this fulfilled in Joshua? Moses dies. He doesn't make it in. He looks afar off and sees it, but he doesn't make it in. But Joshua does. Joshua, this great man of God, this great leader, he gathers the people. He's obedient. He takes them across into the land, and they do conquer the land. Is Joshua then not ultimately giving rest to the people of God? Now, the ultimate point that we see in these chapters is that there is a shadow of the promise of rest, but the people never actually receive it. They never actually have it. It's never given to them. Now, where do we see that? Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, so if he had, then this author says, inspired by the Spirit, He, meaning David, or God speaking through David, would not have afterwards spoken of another day. In other words, if he said, Joshua led the people in, they took the land, therefore they received the rest, then this author says, then why would David have said in his own day, many years later, that you can now enter the rest? We looked at this last Sunday, you may remember. In other words, in the days of David, were they not already in the land of Canaan? It's now 
Israel. Now they're in Jerusalem. They are in the land. Therefore, is it not fair to say that David wouldn't have to say that there is a a, a way of entering the rest for those uh, who do not harden their hearts? No, you'd say we already possess it. We already have this rest. We're in this rest. We are in the land that God has promised, this land of rest. And yet that isn't what David says at all. David says, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the days of rebellion. Remember he said to them, they will not enter my rest. And the same is true, David says, for you. If you harden your hearts and do not respond in faith to the message uh, that is given of salvation. So again, we have to put all this together in our heads. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, the answer is Joshua didn't lead them into the promised rest. He wasn't able to do it. Now we're going to talk why in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to say a few things about Joshua. Because just as the author of Hebrews in chapter 3 wants to say from the very beginning, I'm not speaking ill of Moses. Please do not mistake me. I am not speaking ill of Moses. Moses was a man faithful in all God's household. He was a great leader. He was an intercessor on behalf of Israel. He was an apostle of God on behalf of Israel. But there is one greater than him who the author says, He himself pointed to. He did literally, didn't he? When he said, another prophet will arise to to him you shall listen. He was a greater apostle sent by God on a greater mission. He was a greater intercessor as our high priest. There's no comparison. Moses was great, yet as if compared to Christ, I'm going to use Paul's analogy here of the two covenants. It's as if, it's as if, I mean, he was a great leader, faithful, but In comparison to Christ, it's as if he wasn't great at all. That's how great Christ is. Make no mistake about it, we do not idolize Moses. We respect Moses. He was a great man of God, but he was not Jesus. That's what this author was saying. Well, who is Joshua? Joshua was a great man of God. He was a great man of God. Now, Hebrews 11, which we'll come to at some point down the road, It gives many great people of faith. It doesn't mention Joshua there in that sequence of text by name, but it does say that by faith the walls of Jericho fell. Who was the leader God appointed in that hour to obey what he said and lead the people in that battle that the walls would fall? It was Joshua. So I think there is a reference there to the faithfulness of Joshua. Now it's obvious that Joshua was a man of faithfulness. How do we know that? Well, Moses trusted him, didn't he? Moses made him a general uh, in the early days. And then from there he said, I'm going to make him my right-hand man. In fact, when Moses goes uh, to the mountain to go up to be in the presence of God, it says, Moses and his minister Joshua. I don't know what word could be given to us. His assistant, his servant, his minister, his right-hand man, went with him. My friends, Joshua was a man Moses trusted. When Moses is going to send the 12 spies into the promised land, he says one of those is going to be Joshua. Joshua is going to go. So there's all these examples, but what that text there also tells us is Joshua was faithful not only to Moses, but to God. As the spies come back, we know the story. From our childhood, 
The ten spies, oh, it is a land full of milk and honey. It's a beautiful land. It's everything we've heard it would be. So in other words, we could go down a checklist of the promises of God being made evident, right? Until we come to this one that says, have courage and faith and go and take it. And they say, "Eh, God's not that powerful. You understand there are giants in the land. Maybe you didn't hear that at first. There are giants. Now, it's a great land, but we can't take it. We'll be killed. Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, say, what are you talking about? Did you not hear? God has promised this land to us. It's ours for the taking. All we have to do is get up and go and take it. That's all we have to do. So he shows a trust and a faithfulness in God. There are, by the way, numerous points in the life of Joshua we could point to uh, his faith. We spoke a moment ago about the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. And in that narrative, when you read it, God tells Joshua all kinds of stuff that would test your faith. Here's what I want you to do. Go around the city. Seven times, right? All these various things that he tells him to do. I mean, you have to trust that the Lord is actually going to do something, or you just look like an idiot, right? Marching around. Blow some trumpets. But Joshua said, if the Lord has told me to do this, He will provide the victory for us. This is how He will do it. I have no doubt. I have no question about it. It's how He'll do it. So we just have to do it. Joshua exercises, or if you will, as it said in the New Testament, demonstrates or proves his faith, as James says it, right? It doesn't, he's not saved by any of this, but he demonstrates the faith that he has uh, in God, that he goes and does exactly what God tells him to do. So notice, in all these examples that were given of faithfulness, their faithfulness is evidenced by fruit of obedience. They're not saved by their obedience, but the faith that saves them is demonstrated by their obedience. In all the examples that we have of those who died outside the promise, disobedience. Right? The disobedience which demonstrates, if you will, their lack of faith. This author tells you that directly. It's not a controversial statement. It's given to you directly in the text. Now, we see over and over again that this was a man of faithfulness, a man of courage, a man who trusted God, a man that other men of God looked at and said, this is a man of God. But There's an amazing thing that happens in that passage, by the way, where the spies are about to go into the land. Moses takes the man we're speaking of, who, by the way, his name was actually Hosea, Hosea the son of Nun, and he renames him Yeshua, Joshua. Now, why would he do that? The text doesn't tell us. It just simply says, and Moses gave Hosea the son of Nun the name Joshua. Just thrown in there, one little line, just thrown in there for us. But this name means God's salvation. God's salvation. What a fitting name for the one who would ultimately be the trailblazer that would lead the people into the picture of promise. Not quite achieving the promise. Not quite achieving the rest. But he's the one who led them in. Moses couldn't do it. Moses could not do it. Joshua did. Moses points to the promise, points to the land, but can't take them in. Joshua, Yeshua, takes them in. 
Now, he doesn't give them rest. But do you see what's happening here? A little bit of a picture given to us. Moses points the way. One named Yeshua takes you in. Takes you in. By the way, this has been noticed since the days of the early church. That brings us to our second point, an important point that's made here about a greater Savior. We talked about an older Joshua, an Old Testament Joshua, if you will. Why do I say it that way? Well, maybe you recognize that name in Hebrew, Yeshua, is the name that we, transl- we actually translate into Greek and then transliterate all this various thing as Jesus. Jesus and Joshua shared the exact same name in Hebrew. Now, you probably knew that. But it's important to think about the implications of that. Moses renames his assistant Jesus, if you will, as we would translate. It's really Yeshua, Joshua. But he points to something important here. That this one who is the Lord's salvation will be a great deliverer. He will take his people in to the land of promise. But my friends, he's not Jesus. He can't give them rest. Now we're familiar with the pattern of the way Hebrews works, aren't we, by now? We're going to talk about angels, amazing servants of God, but they're not the Son. They're not Jesus. He's greater. Moses, an amazing servant of God, faithful in all God's household, but he's not Jesus, right? He's he's not the apostle, the great apostle and high priest of our confession. He's not the Son who reigns at the right hand of the Father. No, he's, He's great, but He's not Jesus. And now we come to Joshua. Joshua is a great man of God. Incredibly faithful, incredibly valiant and brave. A great leader, a great trailblazer, a great warrior. All the things that you'd want to say, but he isn't Jesus. The first Yeshua is not the second Yeshua. The first one is not as great as the second one. He's great. He's a man of God, but he is not Jesus. And by the way, one interesting thing that you'll find if you're ever reading in the King James Version, as you walk down through in Acts and you're looking at Stephen's sermon and he comes to Joshua, it says Jesus. It says Jesus. And people get confused. They're like, why is Jesus being talked about going into the land and conquering it? Because it's the same name that they're using. That's the same name that they're using. Now, the modern translations help us a little bit by clearing that up, but it's there. You can see it. This is such a close and important uh, allusion, if you will, foreshadowing of the Christ to come in this person of Joshua who led them in when Moses couldn't. When Moses couldn't. But he wasn't able to give them rest. We want to come back to that again. Now, if we want to look at that, we see it over and over again. We mentioned earlier, it says clearly, Joshua could not give them rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, there would not afterward have been a need for David to speak of today then, in his day. It hadn't happened. He had not given them rest. Now, how are we to explain that? Well, there's a complicated way and there's an easy way. I'm going to try to summarize the complicated way. If you were to think for a moment about the promise of rest given to Israel, it was given in terms of a land that they were to possess, 
pictured that way. They would go up and take one day when God would hand it over to them and they would live in that land as a special people. We can go back to the conditional statements at Sinai. If you hear my words, if you obey them, then you will be unto me a special people. They're told this about the land as well. In fact, in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, it makes it very explicit. Moses tells them, if you go into the land and you live according to the word of God, then you will have blessing upon blessing. He goes down through and enumerates those blessings. If you go into the land and you disobey, you do not live out the word of God, then there will be curse upon curse upon curse upon curse. Over and over, we can read it. It's given to us in that Deuteronomy sermon. <coughs> Excuse me. There are blessings if they obey God, but there are specific cursings if they disobey God. In fact, Moses explains that God will even exile them. He'll bring another nation, and they will take you out of the land. This has warned them that this will happen. So there is a rest that's offered in Canaan, but ultimately this rest that's offered there, pictured there, is based on obedience. That's not grace. That's works. If you obey, then you'll have a measure of this grace. You will have rest, excuse me, a measure of this rest given to you. Now, I'm going to ask you to remember back if you were here to Romans and 2 Corinthians. Because this is the very thing that, that was talked about there. As Paul talks about the law and what it was able to do and what it was not able to do. That it was not able to save. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, Paul has written. And he goes to there and he says, The problem with the law is that the man who would be justified by the works of the law must be the man who lives them out. How does the law justify? It can't. All the law can do is point out that you haven't broken the law. The law could uphold your righteousness if you did not violate it. Now, where's the problem that that Paul is getting at in Romans when he quotes that very passage from the Old Testament? The problem is none of us can keep the law. None of us can keep the law. Well, why would God give it to us? Paul answers that question. The telos of the law is Christ Jesus. The purpose, aim, point of the law was to point you to Jesus. In Galatians, he speaks of a schoolmaster who leads you to Christ. Well, how does it do that? Because it points to you, keep the law and live. And you say, I can't. I can't keep it. No matter how hard I try, I can't keep it. Paul goes into much more depth on this, doesn't he? He says, in fact, even though the law is holy and good, When I read the law, it it awakened rebellion within me. We gave the example, I'm sure you remember of, I say to you as a figure of authority here, don't look in the prayer room on your way out. Every one of you are going to crane your neck to see for yourself why I'm not supposed to look in there. What is being shown to us there is we have a rebellious nature in our hearts. Right? That's That's not an accident. The Bible doesn't overlook that. It tells us that. Over and over again, we are rebels. We are fallen people. Depraved is the theological term. Sons of Adam, fallen in Adam. Corrupted natures. So how then can we keep the law if that's only means for righteousness? The point that Paul is trying to make is 
is that the law's purpose was never to save you. The law's purpose was to show you your need of grace, that you are a fallen sinner who cannot establish for yourself a righteousness by law, that you need the grace of God who is holy. There's a gap between you because you are a fallen sinner. God is perfectly righteous. You need a mediator. You need an a, 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 a avenue of redemption that you cannot provide for yourself. And therefore, you are to look for the grace of God in a Savior. And the Bible points over and over again that there will be a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. Now, all of that is important because it speaks to the inability of the law to be lived out by us. Well, why is that important to this discussion? Because the people could not do what God was asking them to do. They were to go in the land and live perfectly by the law, and they would receive rest in the land. The problem is they're in Adam. They cannot do it. Now, if we had a little more time, or if you want to do this on your own, go back and read that sermon in Deuteronomy. Moses says that. You will not be able to do it. You will not be able to do it. You will go into the land, you will fall short, and you will be exiled. It is going to happen. Mark it down. It's not the only place that says it, by the way. The prophets all come and say, inevitable. Inevitable. Isaiah, got a mission for you. Go and preach to a people who having ears will not hear. Preach to them a message they will not receive. How long, O Lord, until the cities are laid waste? It's the same thing that was said more or less by Moses. This is going to take place. You will be exiled. And so in other words, it would seem like in a way this is a message with no hope. Joshua will take you into the land, hallelujah, but you won't hold it. You won't find rest there. The hallelujahs might start to stop for a second. Until you realize that Moses is really giving us one of the greatest threads of grace found anywhere in the Bible. If you would turn just for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to show you something that if you were here during Romans, you'll remember, I pray. Hope all of our preaching is not in vain. But uh, if you don't, it's a good refresher. Listen to what's said here. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, I brought my King James because I wanted to, I was going to quote that part in Acts, but it was going to take too long. But listen to what it says here. Verses 12 through 17. There's an important instruction that pictures the law. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Good question. What does God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul. Well, that's easy, right? Never going to put anything before Him. Never going to love anything that steals the love I ought to be first giving to Him. My loyalty is never going to be divided. I'm going to walk in all His ways and statutes. Never erring, because it just said that's what's required of me. That's what's required, right, as you go into land. Now speaking on behalf of the Israelites. To keep the commandments of God and His statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, thy God's. The earth also with all that is therein. Only the Lord has a delight in thy fathers to love them. And He chose their seed after them, even you above all people as to the state. So there's God's grace in electing them. And listen to this, chapter, verse 16. 
Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. So there's what you're commanded to do. You want to be able to live in the land. You want to be able to obey God. You want to be able to do everything that God requires of you. Here's all you need to do. Circumcise your hearts. Be no longer stiff-necked. Now you may remember, very quickly, what does Paul say? The circumcision God desired was not of the foreskin of the flesh, downwardly or outwardly, but of the heart, right? He wanted a circumcised heart. Now, we looked at that in depth. I think we maybe had an entire sermon in Romans, those three years we were going through Romans, on that very topic, circumcision of the heart. And what is that picture? Those that are unresponsive to God, it's like they have a thick skin around their heart. It's hardened to Him. It's not penetratable. It's distanced from Him. What, what uh, is being said in Romans, Paul is saying, what God wants is not just the cutting off a part of your flesh. He wants you to have a responsive heart, a soft heart, a tender heart to Him. Don't be stiff-necked. What is that a picture of? Not being willing to bow down before God. Be a people who recognize His glory, His holiness, bow down to Him, respond to Him, hear Him, receive Him, obey Him. You say, great, we can't do it. That's really the testimony that Paul gives us in the New Testament as well. We can't do it. And God says, I know. I know you can't do it. But I have grace that I'm going to give my people. I want you to listen to chapter 30 and you'll hear a very different promise. Now this is in that very text we were talking about earlier of going into exile and being under the cursings, if you will, for a time. And Moses says, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, so these are the negative things that he said, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, that thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee. So wherever he's driven you, you'll remember these things. And shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, and with all thy soul. And then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations where the Lord thy God has scattered thee. And if any of thine be driven out into the uttermost parts of heaven, uh, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. I want you to hear verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise your heart. The Lord your God will do what you're not able to do. Now, if we had more time, we could trace this to Jeremiah 31 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. And we'd find there a contrast between two covenants. A covenant written on stone and a covenant written on, as Paul says, sarx or flesh heart. A covenant that told you the demands of what was expected of you but gave you no empowerment to live it out and therefore only pointed condemnation upon you. Though it's good, the law is holy and good, and yet it is our accuser because it points to us how we have broken it over and over. That's what Paul says. And yet, a new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, which we looked at a few weeks ago, 
that spoke of a day when there would be a covenant uh, written, if you will, on the heart. This coming day of a new covenant. Again, not written on tablets of stone, but on the heart. A covenant that Paul talks about in Romans. In Christ Jesus. Not this covenant that we've been reading about throughout Hebrews. Doubly mediated. But a greater covenant singly mediated in Christ. One for which He dies. One for which He sheds His blood. And that covenant will justify. And that covenant will give grace. And that covenant will give rest. Why? Because Christ pays it all. In Him we are justified because by faith we stand in Him and His finished work. No longer is it required of us to earn our own salvation through obedience to the law. Now, we're not preaching an antinomian message here. Please do not mishear me. The law is given to us. We are called to be a people of obedience. That is given to us in this very letter. But our obedience cannot save us. We are not saved by works. We are saved by God's grace. Through our faith, we are joined to Christ and His perfect righteousness. In Adam, as a fallen people, we cannot obey perfectly the Word of God. We cannot perfectly obey His will. We cannot live out the law in such a way that we can live by it. But in this new covenant by grace, we are joined to Christ who did perfectly fulfill the law, did perfectly live it out. And therefore we stand no longer in our own righteousness, which is not perfectly righteous, but we stand in His righteousness, which is perfectly righteous before God. Now my friends, that is the rest that Joshua cannot give. That's why in the Old Testament there really cannot be, there can be foreshadows and pictures, but nobody can really enter it in the sense of uh, some earthly finished possession. People did enter that rest by faith, even in the Old Testament, didn't they? Abraham was justified. Why? He believed God. Joshua was justified. Why? He believed God. Moses justified. Why? He believed God. No different from us. But this picture of earthly rest could not be entered by Joshua because Joshua isn't the one who could take them. Not that Joshua. The Joshua who could blaze that trail and take us by the hand and redeem us is the Yeshua, the one we call Jesus, the Christ. And this author wants us to recognize he is greater than Joshua for that reason. For he alone could, could be the mediator of the covenant that could save by his grace. Now, why is that important? If you walk away from him, what are you walking back to? How many times have we said that? If you claim to be amongst the people of God, but you're going to leave Jesus and go back to the synagogue, what are you walking back to? Moses, we already answered that. It's not enough. Joshua, God's salvation, it's not enough. Only Jesus saves. Who told you that? Moses directly told you that. That the other one would come, to him you should listen. Joshua tells you it too. How? In his inability to give the people rest. He pointed that there must be one who can. It's another Joshua. Another Yeshua. It's Jesus. God's salvation. My friends, trust in him. 